Hi, this is Sandy Rios, and welcome to the third version of Sandy Rios 24-7. We've been getting some great feedback, and I'm so happy that you're enjoying the show. Uh, The show? The show. I can't think I have to say podcast now. I've got to get my language sorted out. Uh, But uh, we are uh, just back from our trip. We were gone seven days, and I thought I'd ask Bruce to join me up top today. Bruce, my husband, Bruce, former FBI agent. Good, Good morning, sweetheart. Good morning. Oh, are we supposed to say good morning? Good We're day. So the androgynous, <laughs> andro- whenever we speak, <laughs> the timeless moments. Anyway, um, Bruce, we just got back from a great trip. Did didn't don't you think? Oh, it was wonderful. Um, it was so enlightening to talk to so many people, and it's just great to get out in the country and meet people and see what people's uh, mindsets are about what's going on in government. Yeah. So in the next uh, week or so, you're going to be hearing some great. Uh, Morris Tan is a Korean-born dean of the law school in at Liberty, and boy, what a story he has. We had a great discussion, didn't we, Bruce? Oh, he's an amazing man, and uh, like you say, he has a wonderful story, and people will, I, I will, as I sat there listening to him, I was fascinated. And then Congressman Dave Bratt, who's such a good friend, and we went all over the map with our conversation about philosophy and uh, you know ethics in in uh, business, it was it was really a fun discussion with him. I think people are going to love that. And John McGuire, uh, the the Navy <laughs> SEAL from Virginia, John is shot out of a cannon. Yeah, yeah. he is nonstop. But he's got a story that's so gripping. So all of these things we're going to get to in the next uh, you know several podcasts here, and I think you're going to enjoy them. And so. I want to thank all the people of uh, Northern Virginia and Washington D.C. that we had a chance to spend time with, uh, and uh, who you know sat down and did wonderful interviews with us that we're going to present to you. Well, let me just say that there are some practical nuts and bolts that I need to tell you about. We have, first of all, you can get this podcast on AFR.net. AFR.net. That's our home base. That's home platform. American Family Radio. Uh, but we're also on all the other podcast platforms. If you have a preference, when you listen to podcasts, you can find it Sandy Rios 24-7. Also, if you want to email me, we can still do that the old-fashioned way. It's sandy at AFR.net, sandy at AFR.net. I have a new website, sandyrios.com. There are a lot of things on there that are interesting. You can sign up for a mailing list if you want to be notified about what's happening, what we're doing. Uh, that's kind of a work in progress, but it's already ex- already existing, and you can sign up. Um, also, if you, you know, I'm hoping to get uh, some of our um, appearances up on there so you can figure out where we are before we get there, <laughs> as opposed to after we've been there, so that if you want to come join us, you can do that. So that's a goal. And, of course, we're on the major social media uh, outlets, you know, name, put, you know, fill in the blank. There's so many. It's annoying, isn't it? Uh, Twitter, Getter, Facebook, Instagram, and I can't remember what I left out, left out. But I hope that you are on one of those platforms and we'll be trying to communicate with you through all of those to make it easy for you. Hard for us, but easy for you. All right, and um, once again, before we start the podcast this morning officially, I want to just uh, thank Preborn for partnering with us in these early days uh, when we are launching this. Preborn is, uh, uh, you know, a wonderful, it's a wonderful way of saving babies. It's a unique way uh, by providing ultrasounds to women who can then see their unborn babies in tremendous detail. And 80% of women who are able to see that actually say, you know what, I, I can't, that's a life. For heaven's sake, that's a life. It's not a blob of tissue. It is a life. 
within my body, and I can't, I can't uh, get rid of that baby. Abortion is the leading cause, by the way, of death among infants in the United States and in the world. Sadly, with the abortion pill, that's RU486. I remember I used to debate that when it first came out. When I was president of CWA, we debated that all the time. It's a horrendous process where women actually abort their babies at home. It's, it's not nice. It's not pretty. And yet they act as though it's just like, you know, taking an aspirin. But the abortion pill now is accounting for over 50% of all abortions. And babies' lives are even more at risk right now. So ultrasounds cost about $28 for one. And that's, you know, that's you know, a lot of the women that find themselves pregnant with unwanted pregnancies are young and maybe, you know, they don't have a lot of money. And this is the way you can help them. By uh, spend, sending $28, you can buy provide an ultrasound for one girl. $140 gives five babies a chance at life. And by the way, all those gifts are tax deductible. All you have to do, this is so simple, it's amazing. You just pick up your phone and you dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or go to preborn.com. And now sit back, relax, and listen to the third episode of Sandy Rios 24-7. From American Family Radio, Sandy Rios. We are not called to be nice. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. I think the most important thing we need to demonstrate to our children is genuineness. That we actually believe what we say we believe. A longtime Fox News contributor, Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. Seek justice, not social justice, but God's justice, what's right and what's wrong. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association, a pro life radio talk show host. We've got to say this is the line. Life is sacred. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. But when we come back, our very first bill will appeal the funding for 87,000 new items. And all that applause is taking place in the House of Representatives because after the 15th, the 15th ballot, Kevin McCarthy was elected Speaker of the House. The vote was 216 to 212. Uh, and, of course, famously, six people held out, uh, many voted present, so that uh, Kevin McCarthy could actually be brought over the line. It was a pretty amazing thing to watch on the House floor if you watched it on C-SPAN. And there were so many ways that media spend, spend it. Uh, Fox, I think, was just disgraceful, honestly. Brian Kilmeade uh, called the six that held out, he called them insurrectionists, insurrectionists. Uh, and um, and Mark Levin, my good friend who I love, went after the six that held out in such an incredible way. I could say uh, such a terrible way, really. Uh, I have to say that the six that refused to vote for Kevin affirmatively were really the brave ones on that floor. Uh, they were the ones who would not bend and would not break, and they did that because they knew that Kevin McCarthy was untrustworthy. He's proven himself to be that over and over again. Uh, but somehow they got him down like in one of the, 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 what, the Nelson, full Nelson, <laughs> and they held him down until he acquiesced to a number of their demands, which have turned out to be really fine, uh, fine things. And that's, you know, so then the first thing he says when he gets elected that they're going to address those IRS agents, well, that's all good, isn't it? If he does it, it's all good. And if he does what he says he's going to do, it's going to be good. And those six men who held out, and women, 
uh, who held out will be heroes. I think they'll go down in history as heroes. Well, there's more to say about that, but uh, I want to introduce my next guest. We talked to him while we were at Liberty. Bob Good has been in Congress. This is his first. Um, and this is his first, you know, couple of years, his first term. And I went to Virginia uh, to Lynchburg and spoke on Bob's behalf when he was running for office and endorsed him privately. He, I can't endorse as a part of AFA. AFA is a not-for-profit. They don't endorse. But as a private citizen, I did endorse Bob Good, and I was happy to do that because I've watched how he's voted. His votes have been so solid, and he was one of the stalwarts in the holdout. They were holding out because they could have stopped Kevin McCarthy from being speaker just withholding by withholding five different votes. But what they did is use it as a bargaining chip to get a lot of good things for this country. And we're going to talk about some of those good things with Congressman Bob Good. So sit back and relax here. We're going to go back in time to Liberty and catch up with Congressman Bob Good. First of all, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you for standing firm. Uh, it's great to be with you, Sandy. Thank you for being in the fight, and thank you for having me. All right, so, uh, uh, Bob, it's been hard. I don't, you know, you don't look worn out. I thought you'd, like, have huge bags under your eyes. We've already done two interviews this morning, you said, right? This is a third of four this morning, and then I'll be traveling back to D.C. Yeah, oh, oh, good, oh, goody. I'm sure you're <laughs> yeah, I can't really excited. wait to get back to D.C. <laughs> sure. For some reason, this, the, the sky is brighter on the way leaving the city than it is going <laughs> into the city. I'm not sure yeah, what that is or tr- why that might be. Oh, listen, trust me, I know. I lived there for years, and uh, it just became more like a, a gulag the longer I lived there. So it's, it's not an easy thing to serve right now in Congress. But you've just really made a name for yourself as someone who won't bend and won't break. And I just encourage you to never change that, like 99% of the candidates usually do. Now, I have some questions about what happened. I, um, You know, on Friday, I saw an article the Washington Examiner had printed, and the headline was referring to Kevin McCarthy, I've earned this GD job. Now, that was uh, attributed to him in a private meeting with all of you. I'm not asking you to comment because I know you probably can't. But that's the way, as far as I can understand, It started. And then on the floor the next day, he said something to the effect, he was quoted as saying, it's, this is not about me. It's not about me. It was all about Kevin McCarthy and his ambition. Who in the world would humiliate themselves with 14 rounds of votes just to get, just to get something? I just don't understand. If the people don't want you, I think I would step down. Nevertheless, he didn't, and he prevailed. And I want to ask you the question, why did so many why was there so much anger on the floor from moderate Republicans to you guys? Why would, you know, I saw one person came on to Matt Gates. somebody tried to get at Lauren Boebert, one congressman was removed from the floor, there were all kinds of exchanges, a lot of anger. Why that red-hot anger over a candidate? Weren't there other people that could have served? Why were they so incensed that Kevin might not win? Well, I'm constructively looking forward and pragmatically looking forward because we have a resolution, and I'll judge our leadership going forward from here. Clearly, I was uh, concerned, and that's why I've done what I've done the last couple of months, and specifically over the last the 14 votes that led up to the final 15th vote and voted no all of those times. That being said, uh, you're exactly right. This should not be about one person. It should not be about ambition. It should not be about pride or selfishness, which is, of course, in the, the norm in Washington. And it's silly to suggest that only one out of four hundred, excuse me, out of two hundred twenty Republicans is capable of leading our conference. And for the first time in a hundred years, we had individuals willing uh, to uh, to put it all on the line and to risk everything personally 
politically. It's amazing how uh, those who were criticizing and attacking our efforts suggested we were doing it for selfish reasons. Everyone who was opposing uh, Kevin McCarthy's speakership was doing so in conflict with their own selfish interests and at great risk to themselves personally, uh, but willing to put country first to try to bring the change that's needed. I happen to believe, as you know, that that uh, required a change in leadership, not just a change in structure and process and rules and, and those sorts of things, which are very, very important. But I felt like a leader who would be a partner in those changes and believed in those changes and wanted to accomplish those same things would be a much stronger partner for us to yeah, bring the change that's needed. Absolutely. And safe to say, I think, safe to say, because I heard someone say this who should know, that every person supporting him wholeheartedly, and I can't say anything about that. I'm not talking about the 20 that stood by you for a long time. All were supporting Kevin out of self-interest. It wasn't because I think any of them really felt like he was a great leader. He earns, he gives them a lot of money for re-election. He gives them a lot of money for offices, for travel. And those of you that don't support him are punished. You know, you have money taken away from you. Uh, and privilege and committee chairmanships and seats on committees. There is punishment if you don't support the leader. And I think the other thing people need to understand is that McCarthy has spent the last several years undermining conservative candidates. Most recently in an, an election, he worked against Mary Miller through another PAC, a PAC by a different name, where he funneled money. Mary Miller from central Illinois, who's a you know sweet, wonderful, rock-rib conservative. Uh, so that's why I'm guessing, my, I'm answering my own question, why so many of them are, are were desperate to keep Kevin because it's privilege for them. Is that fair to say? I don't think there's any question that the reason why on both sides, and certainly on the Republican side as well, you see a tremendous reluctance to step outside of what leadership wants to do, whether it's fear of retaliation or consequence, or whether it's presumption that they will ultimately prevail, and it's a, a high probability of that and a, a limited probability of success when you're trying to de defeat the throne, if you will, uh, and or what they stand to gain because they're so invested in the system. And one of the things we said many times, or I said many times during this process, was it's not just about trying to get a better speaker in the short run or in the immediacy to get a better speaker, uh, but it's also to deal a blow against the swamp cartel, the system, the Republican system that's hostile to conservatives, shows contempt for the voters who send us to Washington, and, uh, you know, it does not want the input of regular members, but wants dictatorship from the top, elite control at the top from, from just a few. And so that's what we were fighting against uh, in now, this effort. Bob, before you ever got there, and you might not even remember this, because I don't know how involved in politics you were way back, uh, but I remember distinctly when the Tea Party began, and I remember Mitch McConnell saying publicly he was going to destroy the Tea Party. I'm going to destroy the Tea Party. Well, so he has partnered with Speaker McCarthy and Boehner before him and Ryan before him to really destroy uh, the influence and power of conservatives, especially then when Trump came along, the Trump supporters. They're anathema to the, this leadership. Kevin's not. Kevin's like President Trump calls him Mike Kevin. I don't even want to go into that, but that's what he calls him. Uh, but um, so one thing that I wondered about, we all know, we no, I'm telling people because they might not all know that that $1.8 trillion spending package was partly negotiated with the help of uh, Kevin McCarthy, but then he publicly said he opposed it. So I wondered myself why on the floor there was this constant re repetition of we're not making this personal. It's not about Kevin personally. We just know that we need to reinstate. I do understand that you need to reinstate new rules and take back 
the responsibility that congressmen each have to, to represent their people, and we'll talk about those rules in a minute. But it also was about Kevin McCarthy, I think, and I'm wondering why no one wanted to say that. Well, I, I would push back and say it was said many times, certainly by myself, but I was not alone in doing that, that his history, his pattern of performance or lack thereof since he'd been in leadership for about 12 years was to vote for, support, negotiate spending packages like the $1.7 trillion omnibus that he claimed to be against. We thought he was sort of the hope yes, vote no in order to try to secure the speakership. But ever since he's been in leadership, he has been part of those deals, as you've said, and he has supported those deals. And that's contributed on the Republican side to us getting the $32 trillion in national debt. Okay, so, um, all right, so this is all happening on the floor. And I'm wondering, going forward, uh, now we're recording this before it's going to air. And so I have to say that tonight, in real time, uh, tonight, you're going to be considering this rules package, you're on your way back to DC. And I'm just grateful that you stopped by to talk to us, Bob. But uh, I do want to know, What in the world do you think is going to happen to especially U6 and then to the further 20 that opposed Kevin's for so many votes uh, Friday and Saturday? What's going to happen to you guys? Well, I won't pretend that any of us are immune to concern about our own own interest, if you will. That's a human uh, condition, of course. But however, the six of us in particular and the 20 larger group to a great extent as well, we have to give credit where it's due, uh, we subordinated our own selfish interests and uh, the best for ourselves politically. Because there probably the will be punishment. That's what I so want to So I don't know. We'll, we'll find out today if, if we've got the leadership commitment to driving through the rules package as was promised to do, despite the uh, protestations that are already coming forth from a couple of moderates. Hopefully that's just organic from them and not orchestrated by leadership. I'm going to judge Kevin McCarthy going forward now. I'm going to do my best to support him. I'm tr- going to try to meet with him and tell him I'm behind him and looking forward to working with him and we'll hold him accountable. And hopefully we will look back to this past Friday night or really Saturday morning with thankfulness and gratitude, not with regret at what might have been. But but we'll see uh, chairmanships on the committees assigned today or tomorrow, I would think. And I think we'll have the committee assignments for the members uh, take place on Wednesday or Thursday of this week. And so we'll see where we stand and, and what, what the result was of those who were willing to uh, vote in opposition. Okay, let's get in the weeds, at least dip our toe in them. I hate, don't want to bog people down. You know that. The, thing, the process that you guys follow is very important to the country. But, you know, you represent us for a reason. So, the, you know, the guy who runs a business who's driving his truck right now doesn't have to worry about the rules that you have to worry about. Nevertheless, those rules will affect him. And I think uh, let's talk about that first one that you, this is the Jeffersonian rule, the vacate the chair motion. And it's, a, it's such a lofty name, but uh, explain what that means and explain what you landed on after all the negotiations. Well, for nearly 200 years, we had the ability put in place by Thomas Jefferson for any member of Congress to make a motion to vacate the chair, which just means to force a vote on whether or not the speaker should remain in his or her position. Nancy Pelosi removed that in 2015, and we were demanding that be put back in place. And a strong, secure, confident leader is not threatened by the fact that he or she has to de- is dependent upon the support of those they purport to lead. So that's important accountability measure for us. It's kind of like a British system, isn't it? Where they can call for a vote of confidence and, and they can switch governments. In right a in the sense, the on the House level, kind of that's like true. It. Yeah. But it's been misconstrued, as many things were through the process, that one person could go mo- remove the speaker. No, one person could make the motion, but it would take 218 votes 
to force that. And then all that would do is then force a vote for a new speaker, and conceivably the same person could be voted back in as speaker. Uh, so, and, and, and there was criticism that, oh, someone would cavalierly or flippantly just do that. It's only ever happened one time when Mark Meadows brought that motion uh, with Mr. John Boehner, which ultimately led to his departure. Oh, how sad. Uh, so, and my, that's why I'm Nancy, weeping. Pelosi, Where's my Kleenex? N- Nancy Pelosi <laughs> wanted to have it removed. <laughs> All right, so that that's there, and that's something that Kevin agreed to. Does it Has he agreed to it, or does it have to be voted on tonight? In rules? It'll be in the rules. He's agreed to okay. it okay. Uh, in principle, and it'll be voted on in the rules package tonight. Okay. All right, because spending is out of control. I know you don't know this, but I'm going to tell you, Bob, spending is out of control. <laughs> I'm trying to write that down. I'm trying to inform you so you can can be a more effective congressman. All right, so you guys addressed that, and you came to an agreement with him that hasn't been voted on till tonight. That whenever you win, this is my layman's terms, you spend all this money, you have to agree to cut some things somewhere also. Yeah, some of the changes that are so important are things like. A minimum amount of time, 72 hours at a minimum, to review a bill before we vote on it. Single, so, so don't present it on Christmas Eve. Yes. Yeah, and, and you have to vote 4, on 4,000 pages yeah. in two hours notice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but a minimum amount of time to review it. Uh, single issue legislation instead of multiple issue legislation. So Congressman so-and-so can't put a bridge in the vote to, you know. Yeah, or we, you can't have, you know, the, a health care bill and a farm bill and a border and okay. the budget all, all in Just one. Just too much. Single omnibus. Issue. Yes, omnibus, yeah. Uh, that we would allow amendments to the bill so where we can try to make changes to them to make them better, but they have to be germane to the legislation itself. Though, to require a, a three-fifths vote to raise taxes is a big one as That's well. That's a huge one because we know they're going to yeah. try to raise taxes. And what but, you referred to in the question was cut go, where in order to spend more uh, discretionary spending, you would have to cut the same amount from someplace else in order to do that. Now, rules can be waived. And that's what happens typically, but but it would take the conference to vote to waive those rules. And so we'll just have to stand strong and hold accountable. All right. So uh, on the uh, on the spending bill, um, so if uh, right now that the way the budget was settled and it was passed through next September, and the House is the one that controls the purse strings, purse strings. Of course, we have to do sort of some educating here a little bit, Bob. So, is it still true? Even if you pass this rules package, you guys are stuck with whatever they have passed through September. Is that still what made it so silly? All the criticisms. Oh, we're delaying the speaker vote. There's not a lot of meaningful things we can do in the House side anyway. Of course, it didn't matter that we delayed it for a week. The American people don't care. It took a week to elect a speaker. But because of the omnibus spending bill, when the Republicans betrayed America, betrayed their voters, uh, particularly on the Senate side, but some on the House side as well, you're right. We have lost our budgetary leverage until September, except for when the debt ceiling situation arises. So all the other bills we're going to pass out of the House, as we should, to show how we're different from the Democrats, will just be messaging bills because they're not going to pass the Senate or be signed by the president. So starting the investigation, starting the hearings and so forth is very important. Passing passing messaging bills is very important. However, what will be critically important, and that's why I felt like leadership was so essential, is when we get to that debt ceiling situation, we've got to have nerves of steel, resolve, strength, courage to say we are not raising the debt ceiling unless we have commensurate cuts that put us on a path to fiscal responsibility. Not promises to that effect, but part of that vote. And I have said now for three years, I will not vote for a debt ceiling increase that does not include cuts to spending that puts us on a path to fiscal responsibility. Let me just go back for just a second, because I think uh, we it would be good 
to explain to people with these huge spending bills. You have had, you, congressmen and women, have had almost zero say in these big spending bills. It's all been done behind closed doors with McConnell and McCarthy and other leadership minions, and they come out and announce, and Pelosi and Schumer, and they come out and announce it and give you barely time to even, you can't even read it. Yes. And you're stopping that. There's a secret committee called the Rules Committee that almost nobody knows about that really controls what gets to the floor in the legislation. What we have negotiated, and again, I'm going to praise my colleagues who've been part of this, the whole 20, even the 14 who didn't stay to the bitter end with us, but what they negotiated was conservative representation on the Rules Committee significantly, conservative representation on the Appropriations Committee, which is how we spend the money. And so this, it will make it much more difficult to have these kind of bills come to the floor. And again, with the rules we have in place on working through the actual committees that have jurisdiction and allowing amendments from the floor, which hasn't happened in six years, and allowing clear and true debate again on the House floor and putting those kind of constraints in place will make it much more difficult not impossible, as you know. That's why you want a leader that supports those things, not agrees to those just because they want to grab at the brass ring. But it'll make it much more difficult. And so if the party as a whole shows resolve, we're going to be in a lot better place. All right. So tonight, we're almost finished, Bob, because I know you've got to get on to D.C. Uh, if uh, tonight <laughs> you convene and somehow a sabotage takes place for all of the things that you guys fought and fought and fought for all those hours. Uh, what Do you guys have a plan? Well, I'll be in some meetings when I first get to D.C. before we get to that House floor to strategize with some of my colleagues who are critical in this. And none of us are going to be blindsided by the possibility that the rules package could fail. But I will submit that I think leadership is truly invested in the success of this. I don't think that, I don't think, and I hope that I'm right, that leadership wants the rules package to fail. Now, that doesn't mean they may, they may not try to use some leverage to try to see, can they take a couple of those things out that were agreed to, to try to tell us, hey, it'll fail without that, and try to get us to give in. But I think one of the other things that really happened that was tremendously, you, you cannot overstate the value of what took place. They saw the resolve of 20 people who were willing to risk everything to take down a presumptive speaker, to force change. So I think they know this is different in the past. Uh, some of our critics were telling us to cave and go, oh, we tried this. No, they never tried this. They never did what we've done here. That hasn't happened since the 1800s. And so I think they will know that to a greater degree than has happened in at least 150 years, when we say no, we mean no. I know that, and uh, let me just say, Bob, I think if we could have filled that gallery with real Americans, you would have heard so many cheers. Unfortunately, you're in D.C., and all you hear is what the press is saying and the, 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 uh, the hostility from your comrades and your own party because of what you were doing, and much less the Democrats. So it took a lot of courage. Okay, so last question. Now, you've been serving. How long? You're in your Finishing my first term, or starting my second term, I should say. So, so a little over two years. Are you happy or sad that you ran for Congress and won? I believe the Lord prepared me for this. I believe that he wired me for battle. And uh, I actually, a part of me enjoys the fight. I believe in what we're doing. You know, we're all frustrated that change is so difficult it's messy. It's 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 it takes time. It takes resolve. It's a, if it was easy, it would have already happened. 
But I believe the Lord's prepared me for it. I believe He's prepared me all my life for how He's using me with my colleagues. I'm not a lone ranger. We've got other there are other courageous warriors fighting alongside me. Of course, if I was the only person voting against Kevin McCarthy, that would have been asterisk to the vote, <laughs> the first ballot, and he would have been Speaker early on Tuesday, uh, and we wouldn't have been able. To, I could never have negotiated all these uh, changes that are very positive, constructive for the country, which is most important. Uh, if I had been in there alone, so I believe the Lord's prepared me and my colleagues for such a time as this. I told them leading up to this time. We will look back and remember this for the rest of our lives. What we do here, we will remember forever. Oh, I think this is going to make the history books. I really do, Bob, one way or the other. And so, and you're going to be a central figure in that. And so, um, Congressman Bob Good from the 5th Congressional District and the state, great state of Virginia, or the Commonwealth of Virginia, we're proud of what you've done. And we just uh, pray, we'll be praying for you to go forward. And I'm sure there are going to be lots of things where you're going to be standing alone or are among a small group of people, and this is a this is a good warm up, don't you think? Uh, I think it was. It was an important battle, and we're better for it. And we'll assess how we did going forward, and we'll hold leadership accountable. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you, thank you so Great much. To be with you. Great God to be with you, you too. Okay. Thank you. Well, that was an interesting few moments with Bob Good, and it was uh, the morning we recorded that was of course the morning of the vote, and the rules package did pass. And in a second, we're going to talk to Mike Howell, who's the director of Her- the Heritage Oversight Project. He's a, he's a dynamo. And he's going to give some perspective on those rules. He's a tough sell. And so I, I really appreciate what Mike has to say, and I think that you will enjoy it too. Meanwhile, let me remind you, there are lots of ways you can communicate with uh, Sandy Rios 24-7. Uh, you can go to sandy at afr.net, and you can you know tell us what you think. Uh, as you have many of you who are longtime listeners, that's how we communicate, sandy at afr.net. Uh, and you can go to sandyrios.com, which will be kind of a clearinghouse for a lot of things that we're doing, and all the face, all the uh, social media outlets as well. We have um, a phone number, which I'm gonna, we've set up because I'm going to, because a podcast is not live, I can't take your calls in real time. So this is a way of taking your calls. You can call 662 821 2040. That's 662-821-2040. And leave your comment or your question, and uh, I will insert those in the show, or we may just do a whole show about that, just interacting with you. It's a wonderful way to do that. And as a matter of fact, we have a listener from Kansas who just called in, and here she is. Hi, Sandy. This is Kelly from Kansas, and I would just like it if you could clear up some of the confusion about what just happened with electing uh, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House um, in the House of Representatives because I hear I hear Marjorie Taylor Greene saying there was no need for people to stand against him for the 20 to refuse to vote for him because almost all of the concessions were already given except for being able to vacate the, the Speaker of the House with just one vote. She, she was saying, well, all the other concessions had already been given, I think she even said months ago. And But then I thought I heard uh, Chip Roy and even another representative say, no, that this is them standing against uh, Kevin McCarthy, not voting for him, is what got so many of these good concessions. So I was wondering if you could explain the the details about that and also just give your take on why more Freedom Caucus members did not stand strong in uh, not voting for him. I mean, just in light of his past record not being very 
conservative, not standing strong for for much. And anyway, I, I was just hoping you could explain some of that. And I'm so, so glad to be able to listen to your podcast and, and have you back, Sandy. God bless you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Kelly, that's so sweet. Thank you. I'm glad I'm back too. <laughs> I've missed uh, I've missed the daily show, and so this is just a great uh, this is a great way for us to to reach out to each other again. Hey, listen, those are great questions, <laughs> and I think a lot of people, you know, would would have been listening if I'd been on the air during this time. And I certainly had a lot to say that I wasn't able to say. So I would just to give you some highlights and some perspective if I can. Uh, there is absolutely no doubt that the six who held out and the 20, the broader the 20 who held out, were the reason why these concessions were made. There was no other reason. There is no other reason. Uh, Kevin McCarthy has a long history of promising, then not delivering, of uh, of uh, punishing conservatives, of not giving them committee assignments, not giving them, not allowing them to present you know, amendments. So it's, it's a punishing process. It's not, it's not right. It's certainly not the way the founders had in mind. And what this group, this small group was trying to do, uh, was force Kevin because he couldn't become speaker if they didn't, if five of them held out, he couldn't have done it. If they'd held out to the end, he would not be speaker now. And that's why it was like 15 votes, uh, in order to get him because he kept making more and more concessions. So these men are heroes. I think they'll go down in history as heroes. I think they'll make the history books. I really do. Uh, these are historic changes. As to Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene, Marjorie is all in for Kevin McCarthy. She has been for the last several months. I can't tell you why I could speculate, but I'm just telling you she is, uh, which has been very disappointing to me, which makes me not trust her on other things. I'm just telling you. Now, she's been really rock rib on so many things, and I don't want to take that away from her. She's been a real, a real, a real firebrand. I love that, actually. I love that. But on this, she's as wrong as she can be. So was Mark Levin. So was Sean Hannity. So was Brian Kilmeade. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Uh, why would they do that? I think they have reasons. I don't know about Mark. I, Mark, I don't, I'm not going to impute any. Uh, I don't know what was going on with Mark, except I think some of the people that he called out uh, do not support the convention of the states, and he's very vested in that. So that might be the reason why he had harsh words for them. Uh, but um, uh, as far as the others are concerned, you can bet that the people that supported McCarthy in mass had a lot to gain. They had promises of what committee chair, committee positions. Uh, they certainly have the promise of money. Uh, because people that support Kevin get a lot of money to be reelected. They get a lot of money for their offices, money for travel. The others are starved out. So uh, there's a reason why they stand in lockstep and get angry when someone doesn't want their Kevin, as they've said, a couple of them, my Kevin. <laughs> Go figure. I don't, I don't understand that because he, as you can hear when he talks, he has trouble expressing himself. He's not, um, he's not, um, let's just say he's not known for his great intellect, nor is he known for his great leadership, but he knows how to raise money and he knows how to um, control people, I guess, with purse. So um, he has won. He won on the 15th ballot. The good thing is that these 20 who now have risk a lot, because if the wheels come off the bus, there will be such punishment. You won't believe it. Uh, But so far, uh, it doesn't seem to be going that way, and as a matter of fact, the rules were voted on 
uh, this past week, and that's going to be our conversation with Mike Howell in just a minute. Uh, you ask why more Freedom Caucus members didn't join. You know what I said before? I think I maybe I didn't say it on this podcast. Politics reveals our character. It reveals character. Boy, does it ever. And very few people pass the test. Now, some Freedom Caucus members, Thomas Massey, I love. Thomas uh, wanted to be on this oversight committee, and he is on it now. Uh, I don't know what his reasons are. As I'm just telling you, that's that happened. Uh, Jim Jordan wanted to be chairman of the judiciary. That's been his ambition. That's why he stepped down from running for speaker last time, because Kevin McCarthy offered him the uh, the minority um, position, lead the minority leader in that committee, hoping to step into the chair at some point. And certainly Jim Jordan has all this uh, background on investigating the FBI and all of that, so he's going to bring his expertise. So, you know, who? Can, those are the reasons why some people did it. Others backstabbed uh, some of their own members. And so there's a lot of hard feelings, and we need to pray for them, uh, pray for the whole house because, uh, you know, that was a battle and there are a lot of bruised egos, bruised feelings. You remember there were some at- attempted attacks on the floor. Mike Rogers really disgraced himself by going after uh, Lauren Boebert and M- Matt Gates. They had to take him off the floor. Yeah, so it, they, uh, you, you saw a lot of people's character being revealed. Um, and, and anger, you know, anger and outbursts, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think if you're dealing with these things that are so important, you're trying to save the country, there should be some anger. There should be some flare-ups. If there aren't, that's more disturbing. Uh, but um, we saw a lot of things, and it revealed a lot of characters. So nevertheless, we are we we operate with the deal we are handed, and uh, with the hand we're, we're dealt is what I meant to say, and we're dealt this hand. This is, uh, But we have some great people in there who are fighting, and because of their fight, we have this great rules package. And now we'll see what happens going forward. All right, so I hope that answers your question, and and thank you for your kind remarks, Kelly. Let me say before we get into Mike Howell's interview, and by the way, Mike is a star. You're going to enjoy what he has to say. He's going to become a regular, I'm sure, on the show. Uh, But Preborn, of course, has taken a a risk. They've thrown their hat behind us for these opening days, and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, Ultrasounds, uh, they give women ultrasounds in all of them, in Chicago, Los Angeles, the East Coast of Florida, they're all provided by preborn. And they have saved so many babies' lives since they've been doing this. In fact, um, when you a woman hears the ultrasound and she hears the baby's heartbeat and sees the detail of the baby, uh, the chance of the baby living and not being aborted by that mom have doubled. And so you're doing something to actually, truly, honestly save lives. You are the hero of every preborn baby in this nation and an ambassador for eternal life for every mom, dad, and family that walks into every preborn partner clinic. And if you want to know how much, it's $28 to sponsor one ultrasound. That's just one, $28, $140, uh, gives five babies a chance for life. And all of those gifts are tax deductible. And how do you do it? You go to your phone and you dial pound 250, pound 250, and say the, just say baby. <laughs> That's the key word. It's baby. That's pound Two fifty, baby, or then go to preborn.com if you'd like to do that. That's easier for you. Go to preborn.com and do it the old-fashioned way. All right, well, sit back and relax because uh, you're in for a treat because coming up next is Mike Howell, who's the director of the Heritage Oversight Project. And boy, does he have stuff to tell us. This is Sandy Rios 24-7 on American Family Radio. 
And now sitting in front of me is Mike Howell. And his name might not be familiar to you, but let me just tell you, he's a rock star. Uh, He is a rock star. He is a person that I trust uh, who delivers some really great information. He is currently the director of the Oversight Project for Heritage Foundation. Heritage, and I go back a very long way before Mike, maybe before you were born, Mike. I'm not sure. (laughs) I have to check that out. But uh, uh, Heritage is really... The, the star in this town for uh, policy for conservatives. And they've done, under the leadership of Kevin um, Kevin Roberts, they have just really moved, to, in my perspective, in the right direction. I want to just say a little bit more about Mike because I think his, his bio really uh, grabbed me. Not, we're not going to do all of it, but he came in 2018 from Homeland Security where uh, in the Office of General Counsel. He was chief legal point of contact for the department's 3,000 lawyer office for all their congressional oversight investigations. Uh, He was on Capitol Hill for five years as an attorney with the Senate Homeland Security Government Affairs Committees and the House Oversight Committee, and he worked with Ron Johnson, Jason Chaffetz, and Ron DeSantis. I just have to say we could talk about all those people, but we won't. Ron, uh, Ron Johnson is just a very, very good friend. I, I love him as senator. So you have to tell me all the real scoop about him later, okay, Mike? I will. <laughs> He's a hero. <laughs> he is a hero, absolutely, with a capital H. Mike, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Now, we had a little drama on Capitol Hill. Uh, I talked with Bob Good about that, and he gave me some insight as one of the, the six holdouts. But I want to ask you a few more things. I think it would be really good to help people understand what took place from your perspective? We've had a few days to think about it. What really took place during that three days uh, in that Speaker of the House race? How would you analyze it from the the ten thousand you know mile view now, looking back? What happened? So surprise of the century. I mean, the House of Representatives actually did some legislation and negotiation to to come up with a package that they could agree upon. Everyone freaked out, but this is what we send people to D.C. to do. I mean, they're there to ex- you know express the wishes and, and desires of their constituents, and sometimes that means debate. And it ended up with a, a great outcome, I think, for conservatives. You know, it's funny you should say that because years ago when I was on radio in Chicago, I used to say it was disturbing to me that the House and the Senate were so polite. Uh, why they were doing terrible things. I always thought there should be a fight. There should be a fight on something, a fight on the floor. They used to be so passive. I'm sure many of them still are. So I really, I agree with you, Mike. We saw, we saw the sausage being making, made, and it wasn't very pretty, but it came out, I think, well. I want to ask you about that in just a second. Explain a, a, a few more things before we move on. Uh, McCarthy supporters stood solid. That's Republican establishment. That's my definition. Uh, and they just seemed to go in rank. They just didn't break. I mean, they, they I don't think they ever nominated anyone besides Kevin McCarthy. You know, even if there were 14 votes, they weren't going to leave him. Why that kind of loyalty and what made them so angry uh, so that they almost attacked a couple of the uh, mem- the six or the 20? What made them so angry? Because there's a disruption to the process. I mean, if you notice, even the people who are most loyal to, you know, now Speaker McCarthy, they weren't defending the the rules package per se or the claims of the, you know, 20 that were pushing for changes. They were just angry that the process was disrupted. Now that the process is over, everyone's looking at the outcome and all of the changes, some will call them concessions, some will call them improvements or evolutions, but everyone's happy with the changes because really it's indefensible for the status quo to remain, which is essentially a small cadre of leadership members and staffers writing all of the bills and controlling the House floor. No one can go out there and principally 
be opposed to an open process where members actually have a say in the legislative process. And that's what the rules package really reflected a change to uh, a more open environment. Well, this was really hard to message, as you well know, to the American people because they didn't understand a rules package and all the details of that. But I think they understood, they certainly understood that Kevin McCarthy has stabbed conservatives in the back repeatedly. And they don't feel they can trust him, much less if the members of the House can't trust him. So it was pretty emotional, I think, for the American people. I wished that the gallery had been opened up to them to come in and let uh, uh, the guys that I think really represent America hear they're cheering and they're, you know, cheering them on. But I didn't, that wasn't allowed, was it? I heard McCarthy sort of fill the, the gallery with his people. Is that right? I'm not sure. I wasn't looking into the gallery, but I will say the one thing that was really great about it is C-SPAN was allowed to film all the activities yes. on the floor. Yeah. Uh, I, we picked up a lot of things on the floor. I mean, up until the final night where you had the incident with uh, now Chairman Rogers accosting Matt Gates, had it not been for the cameras allowed to be rolling in that you know, House gallery, that might have never been reported. Keep on the cameras, I say. Yes, and there was yeah, there were a couple of altercations like that, and there are a lot of memes about that. So it's hard for us to know exactly what took place. There's obviously when you spend that many hours on the floor, there are already bad things happening in the Congress, and we got to see actually some of them. Some of the behavior was pretty pretty surprising, shocking, really. It was, and I mean, what is the argument that is actually principled against the cameras rolling all the time on the House floors? Uh, they're shut off now. Uh, that's kind of the standing status quo with the House. I think now that people got a taste of actually seeing the behind the scenes, you know, negotiations and interactions of the representatives, uh, there's going to be a bigger push to uh, keep those cameras on. And I I know I'm pushing for it. You know, uh, didn't they also uh, exact a promise that they would not be doing this proxy voting anymore, that they would have to be, they may be some exceptions, but that they have to be in the floor. When they convene, they have to be there. Is that right? That's right. And that's going to be a huge change. I mean, there's a couple members on the Democrat side who haven't shown up for basically all of last Congress. They, they've mailed it in and worked from home the entire time. It's gotten no national attention whatsoever. I mean, you know, I, I focus a lot on the oversight uh, part of Capitol Hill, and I'm watching a lot of these hearings over the years. I saw some crazy things. I'm talking members zooming in from their cars. Uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, one hearing, was in the car with her, you know, just driving and got disconnected five times while she's questioning a witness. I mean, we talk about oversight as the chief responsibility of Congress, especially this Congress, and they were literally doing it from their couch and car, et cetera. No more. Yeah, or not showing up at all. It is just just shocking. We have a congressman that represents us that does that, too. I won't name names, but uh, we'll (laughs) talk later. Uh, You know, is it true or not that Kevin McCarthy reached out to Democrats? That was a big story uh, before the vote, before the 14th vote, when he actually prevailed. Uh, but there was there were rumors that he was actually trying to bargain with the Democrats. Is that true or not? You know, I don't know that to be true, and I'm I'm thankful I do not know it to be true because if I knew it to be true, I'd be pretty upset about it. But uh, certainly that was that was floated out there. There were some members like Don Bacon who came out and said that he was willing to work with Democrats. And so my question for the punditry class that really went off on the the so-called twenty rebels is where was the anger for Don Bacon openly saying he would work for Dem- with Democrats? You had all this focused anger. It, t- it seemed like Fox News, frankly, turned into a propaganda arm for the establishment. They were so angry with this twenty, basically calling them traitors. Dan Crenshaw called them terrorists. You don't see that kind of anger uh, for Don Bacon saying he'll work with the Democrats. And furthermore, let's go back the last two years. Look at all these bills in which Republicans cross party lines to vote with the Democrats. I'm talking the infrastructure bill. I'm talking the chips bill, which was money to China for quote unquote chips. That's a slush fund. A lot of Republicans voted for things. 
Where are their punishments? We were talking about kicking 20 Republican members out of Congress, basically, for doing the right thing. And yet we have all these people who did the wrong thing. They're rewarded. Many of them are going to be in high-ranking positions as Congress, too. $1.8 trillion spending bill they crossed over. It's because of Republicans that that passed. And so, I mean, that was a huge betrayal. And I'm I'm with you. Where were the, where's the, where was the pundit class? And I am going to name names uh, because Brian Kilmeade was horrendous. I, Brian, what, called them insurrectionists? Out of the 20 that were whole insurrectionists, he called them. Uh, uh, Sean Hannity was terrible uh, in the way he uh, tra- it was so uh, people's uh, thought about Sean. I've known Sean for a long time. I used to work for Fox. But uh, Sean has been, you know, pretty stalwart conservative. And this was this was a betrayal. It just was. Uh, even if he didn't uh, agree with what they were doing or if he liked Kevin McCarthy, he did not have to attack the way he did. It was very disappointing. And then, of course, Mark Levin, who I love. I've known Mark for so long. And Mark weighed in, you know, tearing these, these six apart for no reason because he claimed that uh, if they did what they were planning to do and held out, that there would be a Democratic speaker. That's, I think, what his claim was. I don't know if you want to weigh in on that, but what do you think that was all about? So I, I think it's a, a larger observation of the state of, of the media. You know, you have the category of news and then you have the category of punditry. What we've seen in recent years is even the punditry class of news crossover into advocacy and activism for particular office holders. And, and so I think, you know, we had a flashpoint event with the speaker's race where people basically just picked a side. And in that, you know, 7 to 10 p.m. primetime hour where it's not hard news and it's opinion and it's punditry, it turned into advocacy. And I think a lot of people noticed that, you know, now they're getting their their analysis and their, their takes from people who may have vested interest, not in the policy per se, but in the people. And that's a little bit concerning and it's something we got to figure out as a country. You know, I, I've said before and I'll say again, politics reveals character. And so it reveals the character of people commenting on it. And this was really kind of a, a litmus test. And I think people have learned a lot. And I've said for a long time, even though, I, again, I worked for Fox for years. Fox used to be our lifeline. It was our lifeline. We trusted them. Uh, and now people are having to learn that they cannot trust. Some of the hosts, I think, yes, still, Tucker, I think still is Sterling. I don't, I'm, you know, I think that they hold back because they have marching orders. So they don't say things that they might want to say. Uh, but, boy, I, I think they, uh, some of the hosts have really revealed themselves, and now people know they can't trust them. When they say something, they can't trust it, and that's sad, but it's also important. We're living in very confusing times where voices that you can trust are hard to find, and so we learn something in this process. All right, um, all right so now this, uh, this, I have to tell you, Mike, I've been a huge skeptic. When they were talking about the rules change and then they voted on it recently on Monday night, on a Monday night uh, after the speaker's race, I just never thought it would get through. I really didn't. I just, I, I'll believe it when I see it. But so I know that it passed, but it, what was it? Did they get everything they asked for? So a lot of the, I guess we'll call them concessions, uh, actually let's call them evolutions. That way everyone's a winner. I think that that's a term people have settled on aren't necessarily distilled to the four corners of, of the rules package. A lot of them are, but, but some, some are not. The ones I was most focused in on are the empowering oversight. Everyone's run for Congress this cycle saying that's the chief function of this Congress. It'll be an oversight Congress. Investigations are the top priority. I personally would have liked to see more of a focus on that in the debate and more positive and empowering changes reflected in the rules pa- package. Uh, those uh, may come to fruition later. We've got to wait and see. I'm, I'm really looking at this church committee. So that's one victory that was 
in the rules package, the establishment of a new subcommittee to go after FBI and intelligence community abuses. But uh, we'll see. The proof's going to be in the pudding, how they structure that, how they staff it, how much independence they give it, how much uh, authority to actually litigate on these subpoenas they have. And so it's still a little bit of wait and see. But the rules package itself contains significant process improvements to include single subject bills, uh, 72 hours notice requirement on them, et cetera. Control of spending, uh, break it, you know, cutting down spending, uh, uh, shocking things like, uh, yeah, not having uh, having at least 72 hours to read a mm-hmm. thousand and thousand and thousand page bill. On those committees, did Thomas Massey, you know, he actually, uh, the oversight, the, the, the church committee, what are they actually calling it? They're not calling it. So it's... Weaponization is the key word in it. It's basically a subcommittee, which is different and distinct than, say, the January 6th committee, which was a select committee. So it's a January 6th committee was really powerful because it was a a standalone select committee with its own authorities. Like Uh, a special prosecutor. Correct. They had all sorts of, you know, the ability to go out and actually litigate. They had the full backing of, you know, Pelosi's office. Uh, Obviously, they issued subpoenas like candy and litigated freely. Now, when we look at the setup of the church committee, and I don't want to be too harsh because the, the news is still coming out on the structure, but what I see is a subcommittee of an existing committee. So we're not talking about necessarily establishing a new organ and vesting it with superpowers. We're talking about uh, what at its, at its worst could be described as a rebranding. At its best, and, and we're here to make sure it reaches its best, it'll be a fully empowered team of absolute go-getters, singularly focused on this mission. Because Jim Jordan's got a lot on his plate. So Jim is the chair of that of the same committee that Thomas Massey is going to be a part of. Tommy Massey, in, Thomas Massey indicated on Fox News that he would be a part of it. I don't think he is on the Judiciary Committee. So the question is, how do members not on the Judiciary Committee get on the subcommittee? These are the process questions we're waiting to see. You can waive members on or steering who is yet to meet can decide to move a non-lawyer Massey onto the Judiciary Committee, which is usually all lawyers. Now, Thomas Massey's so smart, he could probably be a lawyer in a day. So I wouldn't have any problem with it. But these are the kind of questions I'm looking at. The inside baseball, uh, the steering committee has to figure out who's going to which committee. So I want to see that committee, subcommittee, church subcommittee, staffed up with superstars, people who get it. People who aren't going into it needing to be convinced there's a problem. People who know there's a problem. Yeah, I would. Yeah, that's what we're hoping for. Now, Jim Jordan's not an attorney either, and he's going to be chairman of judiciary, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. All right. So he's going to be chairman of that and the chairman of the uh, the Weaponization of Government Select Committee. That is a lot, isn't it? That's a a heavy plate. Yeah. Better that he be speaker. (laughs) But (laughs) we'll talk to him. To to, uh, (laughs) Chairman Jordan, I'm thrilled to call him that, uh, credit. I mean, look at the work he's already done on the FBI. The 300, I think, or it might have been a thousand-page report. Uh, He's done a lot of the legwork for this, you know, subcommittee or whatever, weaponization committee. So he's, you know, if anyone deserves to be leading the charge on it, it's him. I'll just say that the Judiciary Committee has a lot of things in its jurisdiction. So I hope he can, you know— I, I think he should sleep maybe in three years because he's not got much time to sleep <laughs> the next two years. Don't tell him that. I don't want him. We don't we'll, want him to go anywhere. We'll Whisper get him a my pillow so he can get better sleep. <laughs> I hear they're on sale. <laughs> All right. So uh, before we leave that topic, uh, so any other wins that really step out, stand out to you, like personnel? Uh, some people are like uh, Dan Crenshaw is off Homeland Security Committee, right? He uh, well, he is not the chair. He's not the chair. So he okay. was probably you know the inside track to be the chair, uh, and that's frankly because he raises a, a ton of money, 
and you know he does a lot of media, and those things matter or used to matter quite a bit in the selection of the chairs. Mark Green, who is a you know American patriot, is is the chair, and he's somebody that. The border security community to include, you know, Mark Morgan, who is Trump's head of, of Customs and Border right. Protection, Tom Homan, they all came out and endorsed. It's really unusual for people to endorse in a House chairs race. That's how strongly, you know, some that's, of, that's impressive. And, and he got it. And so we're thrilled. I have to ask, there did I read that there was some sort of a, in the rules package, something that addressed the COVID mandates and the military and all of that? Are, so I, I'm not sure in the rules package per se that is addressed, but obviously DOD and others have made announcements to start rolling it back, anticipating the things that the House will do. But the, in the House rules package, they govern the enforcement of COVID, you know, inside the walls of, of the Capitol. And so things like, you know, the COVID mandates, and, and these apply to things like daycare, for example, you know, the daycare facilities on the House, the gym. Uh, you know, a little inside baseball here. A lot of my friends, they, they use those things, you know. And so there's these proxy wars that have been happening between the right and left over, do the kids also have to wear masks all day long in daycare? And you have, like, Republicans who, you know, don't control the daycare, fighting with the Democrats. It's kind of funny, but it's it's really like a reflection of the issues of the country writ large. So now that the right's in charge, the rules package reflects a free and open, you know, uh, way of, of running the House of Representatives, so the COVID stuff is going away. The metal detectors are gone. You and I could go walk over there right now and just get into the Capitol. Uh, freedom's basically back over there. That's really good news because it was like a prison, just like a prison, just creepy with all the restrictions. And I know that Nancy Pelosi made it miserable, especially for conservatives serving in the House. So thank God for those serving who are trying to do the business of the people under all those restrictions. Thank goodness those are gone. And so is, so is she, at least as Speaker. Um, Mike, I, I have to ask you, we're going to run out of time here, so you and I are going to have to talk on a different day about some of this oversight stuff. But what in the world do you think is going to happen to those six and the additional 14, the 20? What's going to happen to them? I think they're going to become heroes. I, I think people are going to look back on this moment of history as they are some of the you know, bravest members who are able to withstand. It's easy to fight the left. It is not hard. It is really hard to fight people on your own team. And so I think even those who were fighting against them a week ago have come around to recognize they were fighting a, a worthy cause. And we were just talking about, you know, how Fox treated them. But if you watch Fox now, everyone's kissing and making up. It's like, you know, everyone's waking up from the hangover from the night before and saying, I'm sorry and hugging and kissing. Let's grab some brunch. I think they're threatened. I think they know the people got, have this figured out. They know what happened. I think they're afraid. That they're going to lose audience. That's what. That's my. That's my cynical take on that, Mike. Uh, but I, whatever. I'm glad. But I. I think. Uh, look. I, I think in the, to the to Americans and to people like me, pundits, they are heroes. But you do you have confidence that there will not be punishment down the road here in the House as there always has been? Well, I'm hopeful. I think a lot of it depends on how everything plays out. Obviously, we're moving towards a much more open process. With that uh, comes some risk. So if the House goes absolutely haywire, they can't pass anything, I think in about a year, a year and a half, people are going to be pointing at the Freedom Caucus and the Brave 20 and saying, look, look at what these guys did. They messed it all up. We could have had just McCarthy control the whole thing. Now we got nothing done. So it's important that this new open process actually works, at least in a way that's you know, transparent and people can understand what the fights are, are about. Uh, and so I think for the short term, I'm not expecting any repercussions. But if we end up in a place where we're fighting each other again in a year and a half, 
uh, there's going to be some finger pointing, and we know who's going to get the finger pointed at. Mike, it's so nice to talk to you. I wish we had more time, but you and I both have to go to a meeting. But uh, Mike is, again, the director of the Heritage Oversight Project. In that capacity, he's doing so many incredible things, and I can't believe I can't ask him about them in this moment, but we will. We'll touch base again. So, Mike, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it so much. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, that's uh, that's podcast three. That's the wrap-up, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, we have so many more podcasts in store for you that are going to be fun, and we're making this up as we go along, as I told you. It's all all new, and there'll be some bumps you know, with the social media, and we're still trying to work out all of that and where I'm going, going to post different articles and websites and all of that. But we, we will figure that out. If you go to sandyrios.com, uh, you can sign up for our mailing list. You can find out where we're going to be. We might even find some pictures on there if I can figure out how to do it. <laughs> but uh, Bruce, you're going to be in charge of social media. Can you can you do that for me, honey? Uh, we'll be in big trouble if I'm in, tr- <laughs> if I'm in charge. The guy who yeah. only took Fortran in college has, <laughs> has a computer course. And anyone under 60 is going, what's Fortran? (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a Chinese, you know, like, I don't know, a a train, I guess. All I can tell you is we were punching punch cards at that time. So that'll give you an idea. You are old. old. How did I end up with you? (laughs) All right. Well, sweetheart, thank you for joining me. It was a good show, don't you think? It was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A lot of information. All right. So we'll be back soon. Uh, We're going to be dropping these podcasts probably Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So for now, there'll be three a week. We may add some more if something breaks. So just get used to going to your podcast uh, favorite platform and check it out. But I think you can pretty much count on right now, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I hope that helps. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Sandy Rios saying goodbye along with my sweetheart. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye.